This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Barbara Minchinton. I'm going to be talking with Sam Elliott about my book, The Women of Little Long, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne. Yeah, thanks so much for that introduction there, Barbara Minchinton, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel James Elliott, uh, a voice you've probably heard speaking to some 40 plus people now in just shy of a year's time, getting ever closer to the Right Way Podcast birthday, uh, first birthday, but yes, I digress. The person whom you just heard speaking or introducing this episode is none other than today's guest, Barbara Minchinton. Barbara Minchinton is a historian and independent researcher, and what we discussed was her book, The Women of Little Lawn. Little Lawn, for those that are not Melbournians listening to this particular episode, because I myself am not a Melbournian, so I didn't know what Little Lawn was, but Little Lawn is an area in a city, in a city Melbourne, that for a large portion of the 19th century, for a great many decades, it was the centre for the sex work trade within Melbourne and proved instrumental in the historical shaping of Melbourne as it was then, as it is now. Uh, and it was an, 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 is, by virtue of its existence, is something that's quite maligned still, uh, not as much, I'd like to think, the sex work trade, sex trade. And yes, yeah, so Barbara Minchinton has done an incredible amount of research. I think it was based on her original archaeological uh, or working of archaeologists in the artifacts in which they recovered and then kind of positive as to what uh, the meanings were or the, the possessions that they uncovered the artifacts and what they could possibly mean. And from there, that sort of uh, launched her investigation and incredible, meticulous, exhaustive, use any word that you'd like to describe her research so long as it stresses how thoroughly she did a job of researching for the women of Little Lawn. But yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to speak to Barbara Mitchington about this uh, still oft overlooked, still much maligned in many respects, uh, sex work trade, sex trade, uh, and it's pr the profession in which uh, it shaped history within Little Lawn. So I want you good all to give a big digital round of applause to Barbara Mitchington talking to me about her incredible book, The Women of Little Lawn. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this glorious afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I can see that glorious afternoon out there. Look, you can see nice a little bit of it. It's kind of concealed behind the blinds. It's actually a lot nicer. The camera doesn't do it justice, but I'm glad that it's kind of conveying a little, a little bit of the, um, the glow that I'm basking in at the moment. Let's uh, let's start off with an oldie but a goodie. I want to know what first drew you to um, to this sort of research there, Barbara, because I saw that there was in the acknowledgements you mentioned about an Australian Council funded project that uh, that you that you participated in. I'm wondering if that was where you first uh, got the idea for what would ultimately culminate in this book. I started um, working with archaeologists. I. Mm. I did a doctorate in history and then started working with archaeologists who had um, some work on the Little Lom site. It's it's an entire block or half block of Melbourne, the northeast corner. And they were really interested in what was happening with the, the working people who were living there. So they knew the reputation of the place, but they also had the feeling that there were other things going on as well. And so they were looking at the 
objects that had been dug up in the archaeological digs from about 1988 through to the early 2000s. And I came on board to try and match up the objects with the people who might have used them. So we were looking at um, who lived there, what kind of work they were doing, were they um, working class, and the more I dug, the more I found sex workers. So from my point of view, it was completely accidental that I ended up being interested in the sex workers of that period. But it came about because the more I looked at the people who were living there and the more I found sex workers living there, when I looked at their lives, what I was finding was that the incredible, appalling treatment that they got essentially from anyone who wrote about them. So the contemporary writers, the, whether they were the policemen or whether they were the novelists or whether they were journalists, they were all men. Mm. And they all had quite a, um, an attitude towards the women which was very negative, which just struck me as incredibly unfair given that a lot of the women were doing this work because the conditions, the economic conditions of the time meant that particularly working-class women didn't have a lot of work options if they had children particularly. So they were very low-paid they were very poor conditions. So the men who'd made the conditions that created these women's lives and then turned around and put them down as though it was their fault. Um, and I, I got quite niggly about it and thought, it's time we saw the other side of things. It's time we understood the conditions of these women's lives and what sort of lives they were being, well, what sort of lives they were living really. I found that it was interesting that you you mentioned that in terms of the sources as well and how that was sort of tied in, um, particularly with the foreword mentioning about the Me Too movement and how it sort of um, ties in with that quite nicely in a way in which it shows that uh, women have been silenced, it, it, even obviously still now in contemporary times, albeit there might be some sort of societal change that's happened since then or starting to happen anyway. And I think that there was mentioning as well that the um, Madame Brussels uh, tour is still misspelled and there was some semblance I got the impression that it was to to kind of clarify the historical accounts because like you mentioned they're all sort of um written by men with their own sort of agendas most of them could be classified or construed as misogynistic at least in some ways but particularly maligning of the sex work trade and I wondered if that sort of also impacted on how it sort of shaped and what how you went about this sort of um this research process when I, when I first started, I was just looking at particular women mm. and I was matching them up with um, the contents of cesspits. So we were looking at what, what was found where and who might have been using them. And it just seemed that, yes, the women were, they came from a great variety of backgrounds mm. and some of them, most of them were working class, but there was also this sense that, their lives, yes, are not seen and they're not seen for the way, uh, they're not seen from a, a lived perspective, if you like. There's, and it's because of the way who wrote about them, mm. what they were writing about them. Um, 
I think I need another question. I'm sorry, yeah. I've lost your no, So, Well, no, that kind of dovetails nicely anyway, because I'm thinking what sort of challenges does that then present to you in terms of compiling all this research? Because much of it is slanted so heavily in a negative light. I was wondering, you know, because much, much of it um, is stemmed from uh, police reports or as we've talked about, like the, the sort of media depiction of these women. So how is that, how did you then go about sort of compiling the more accurate sort of historical evidence if there was any or accounts yeah. like that? That sounds like an uphill battle. Um, I think it's family historians are used to doing this. Mm. So genealogists, you start with the, I would start with a name. I would start with a name in the post office directories or in the rate books as someone who actually lived at this site and then use all the things that family historians are used to using. So births, deaths, marriages. Once you start looking at these things, and you've, you've got to always have an eye at for spelling changes. So, and also the fact that a lot of material in the 19th century was collected by ear. So you've got a rate collector who goes around and takes the names of the people living in various houses um, and who listens to the name and writes down what they hear. Now, so it will depend on the, the accent of the person who said it mm. and it will depend on the understanding of the person who's hearing it. So Mr. Fraser was actually Mr. Fraser. <laughs> and you've got all those sorts of things. So... After a while, you tune into those things and realise, oh, yes, that will be this person. So the, there was a, a sex worker in Little little On called Ada Watmuff. Ada Watmore, spelt sometimes W-H-A-T-M-O-U-G-H, sometimes M-O-R-E on the end, sometimes W-H-A-T, sometimes W-A-T. So the research is always about that detail mm. and it's also about reading between the lines and reading as many stories as you can about the same events so you get different um, attitudes coming through. So reporters for newspapers like The Age and The Argus, they come to it with a different point of view and they'll report different things. So, for example, there's a court case about Madame Brussels where in 1889 she was they were trying to um, close her down and they thought they'd get at her by getting a pile of young girls to claim that she had procured them for her brothel, which was illegal. Um, the girls, in fact, turned out to not have been procured by her at all. And one of them, in fact, said that she went to Madame Russell's because she wanted to take a room in her boarding house. Um, and Madame Russell's took her home to her mother. Now, that line was only in one article that reported that court case. So if you'd only read one of them, you wouldn't have picked that up. Mm. So there's all those sort of things. Yes, you're reading um, police reports, you're reading court reports, you're looking at family history records. Family historians have done amazing work. So if you look at, and they have the patience to sift through hundreds and thousands of records until they find the particular one that tells them exactly where somebody was born. So as long as you approach it with an open mind and say, well, is this accurate or isn't it? You can put together stories from family history that 
we would never have had a chance to, even 20 years ago, we couldn't have collected this stuff as historians because you need that inside insight. So, for example, there's a, um, there's a butcher in Little Lawn who really disliked the sex workers and he really, he was quite scathing about them and he put in police complaints or complaints to the police over and over again. Um, one in particular about a police constable who was dancing with the women in the street at midnight. How dare he? Well, it, it was quite a, an interesting case in the sense that it turned out to be an Irish policeman who'd done one circuit with a, a woman that he, as he'd walked past her in the street when they were playing a harp in the street at midnight. So there's those kind of things. When, when I looked at the family historians' stories about this particular butcher, um, he'd chosen his wife, he said, because she wore the whitest stockings in Little Long and that she was able to keep her stockings white through all the muddy winters. You read a little bit long, a little bit further on, and he had a son who was divorced. He never spoke to him again. And anyone who questioned anything about that divorce could be whipped and sent from the table. So you would never get that kind of information from traditional sources, but family historians are just fabulous with that kind of material. So, and sex workers, people now are not so reluctant to claim these women as part of their family. They realise there's a whole range of reasons why women were doing this in the 19th century. And it was often about caring for children. They were either deserted wives or widows or how do you raise young children? How do you find a job if you've got young children underfoot? There are no um, single mother's pensions. There's no childcare centres. There's no um, widow's pensions. So for a lot of these women, sex work was kind of a job that they could earn a lot more money doing with um, a lot more flexibility about their working hours. Mm. And people are not worried about that anymore. It's like there's almost an excitement about you know, a great-grandma was actually doing this. What an amazing woman she must have been to have put up with all the um, rubbish that men threw at these women. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a lot of rubbish, and it's interesting that you mentioned about there's one article, only one that featured that one sentence, and then also with the butcher in terms of this uh, wildly conflicting or contrasting account of his attitudes. And all it takes, I guess, is just a person's uh, preconceived notions or sensibilities or whatever affronts them to kind of define some sort of what then becomes a historical account. Certainly within, I mean, the sphere of what we've seen here. And you mentioned the butcher. Another thing that astonished me as well, and I found to make it all just sort of uh, shows just how historically significant uh, the work, the sex workers' work within Little Lawn actually was, was all these sort of adjacent industries and businesses that sort of relied on their business. Um, so sometimes that changed on the whim depending upon, you know, I think there was a mention of one case where there was a, I forget who it was, it wasn't a centrist, it was someone that was, that was a front door, they lost work and then that kind of uh, then compelled them to go and complain to to police as to this sort of um, unsavory sort of work going on in their midst. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about 
Barbara, the amount of importance of these sort of adjacent industries that were reliant upon the sex workers and, and their sort of trade, be it the, the milliners, the seamstresses, and then sort of the, those that supply grog and alcohol and all that sort of thing as well. I think probably the two businesses that were really most dependent on the sex workers mm. were the hotels um, because at a certain point, they could the the brothels could actually have a license, but they could only sell Australian product, products. And after a certain point, they could only sell them up till midnight, which wasn't a lot of use for the brothels. So the hotels really were supplying the alcohol, and alcohol was very much the basic. Um, and one of the things that the archaeologists found was that in the cesspits belonging to brothels, there were always a lot of alcohol bottles and a lot of oyster shells. So you could see the kind of culture that, that this is how they, how they ate and, and how they conducted their businesses. So the hotels really were very dependent on, on the brothels and the sex workers because that was just part of the business. There were also the pawnbrokers. There was, I think, I worked out at one stage in 1874, there were um, there was something like 74 pawnbrokers in Melbourne, but nine of them were within a block of Little Long. So it, it was like, it was a side issue. It, it went along with the fact that sex work was a very up and down business, as it were. That's an unfortunate bit of language, but they... It, it, it could be a feast or a famine. So the women, because a lot of their trade was based on the way they looked, they, it was important to them that their dresses were nice, that they had good jewellery, that they had nice hats and gloves and so on. And all of that was eminently tradable in downtimes through the pawnbrokers. So they poured their money into their jewellery and their clothes and then when things weren't going too well, they lodged them with the pawnbroker and get something to live on until the next feast came along. So they were the two really basic businesses. But, of course, then, there's, yes, the dressmakers, because it was all, well, not all hand-sewn, but mostly hand-sewn. And part of, part of the business was that men would give the women... Um, accounts, if you like, at the various, um, not the dressmakers, where, where they could buy materials, the Manchester places. So they could go there and choose their material and they could take it to a dressmaker and have it made up. And this was just part of the business too, that the men of a certain um, strata of society, that was part of, how, part of the deal. And they would... Uh, for the better brothels, I guess you'd say, for the dressed girls who were working in places like Madame Brussels. Um, yes, obviously the jewellery places, but food, all the, all the food places, the grocery places, there was a grocery house on every store, grocery store on every corner, I should say. Um, and they were all making money from the sex workers. Mm. So everything... That, that entire area by the 1880s, I would say, was running off that economy. 
there was also kind of like, I, I suppose, more nefarious sort of less mutually beneficial type businesses as well. There was like the, uh, I mean, there was botched abortions that sort of happened. And there was also kind of the only way I can kind of liken it is almost snake oil salesmen that were kind of trying to spruik. I wrote them down, uh, supplement cures and mercurial chlorides. Yes. Can you talk a yes. little bit about that sort of stuff, Barbara, and how they also sort of preyed on? The hazards of the hazards of sex work in that era were enormous. Mm. And, I mean, we know from the pandemic how catchable viruses are now, and it was the same then, but they were also catching all sorts of disease like typhoid, um, the measles, mumps, all those things were going around. Scarlatina was another one that did the rounds. So anything that was going... Uh, obviously the sex workers were liable to it, but um, sexually transmitted infections were probably the worst because they were not curable without anti antibiotics in that period. So, but because it wasn't curable doesn't mean that people didn't offer cures for it. Mm. And like you mm. say, the snake oil salesmen, um, most of them had opium in them but the, the ones that actually could have an effect of improving it were mercury-based. And mercury, of course, is a poison. And I did come across one doctor's description of how to treat diseases using these mercurial um, chloride, etc. And they said, basically, you feed it to the patient until they show signs of poisoning, and then you ease up. So... So there would have been as many people dying of the actual cure than of the disease. Mm. Fairly horrendous stuff. In Britain, the British got so worried about um, these sexually transmitted infections that they introduced what they called Contagious Diseases Act. Most of us might think that contagious diseases were um, typhoid or cholera, but no, they were talking about sexually transmitted diseases. And they were concerned because too many of their army and navy men were contracting them. And they thought the cure was to um, make it illegal for women to be on the streets if they had these diseases. So mm. men obviously don't transmit them. It's the women who transmitted them. So they would control them by saying if you've got any, you have to be checked every couple of weeks. And if you've got any sign of disease, we'll put you effectively in prison. They called mm. them lock hospitals. Lock hospitals, yeah. Until Now, they introduced that legislation in Victoria in 1878, but they never actually got around to um, putting it in place because the doctors at the Melbourne Hospital said, we haven't got the beds. Are you, are you going to build a new hospital to do this with? Mm. And they said, oh, we'll put it on the estimates. So that was the end of that. It just seems like another reason that uh, there was sort of this, uh, a lot of the media and, and the police sort of whipped up into a frenzy, this culture of fear. And again, like another reason or way in which to malign those that were uh, performing sex work. And I wondered, uh, something I felt quite throughout was the contrast between the, the misconception or the totally inaccurate representation of sex workers as portrayed by the media and police largely. And then there was this, I mean, there was 
some instance of obviously there was violence here and there. I don't think it was ever as pervasive as it was made out to be. Same with bilking, that practice of bilking, I think it's called. Um, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about, it looks like some of your research hasn't unearthed that there seemed to be some sort of um, sense of care between at least some of the sex workers in terms of we also touched on the, the, the fact that there's children or child minding and that there was some sort of process in place, at least for some, where there was at least child minding provided or some sense of care, I think, which just never was portrayed within the media. And is that something that you kind of unearthed there, Bob? Because that's sort of what I found interesting, at least with a couple of points. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a balance. Mm. And, and I think very much there was a lot of theft. There was a lot of violence. But a lot of the violence was just part of working class culture anyway in that period. So um, whether I think it, it was particularly bad in some, some areas and certainly there was danger associated with being in this little on area in the 1860s, 1870s, I think particularly. Um, but the balance between how, yeah, the balance between the ugliness of life, because there was certainly a lot of ugliness in terms of the diseases and, and the violence and the theft. And, um, and the women were often, they might have been the, um, the ones who did the thieving, mm. but they were also victims of thieving too. They lost a lot of, some of the best descriptions we've got of the jewellery they had, which was extraordinary because they... They put their wealth into their jewellery, a lot of them. They come from the police records, which report what was stolen from them. And for many of them, their life savings just disappeared in one theft and they never made it up again. So that side of it, yes, it could be very ugly, but also you do find there's a lot of care between the women mm. um, and you often find the, the women sticking together Madame Brussels had an offsider who was with her for, um, we now know, probably 30 years. And they did care for each other's children. We've got records of people looking after each other or um, someone is injured, they're taken off to the hospital by friends or they're picked up from the hospital by friends. They go on outings together. So you see them, um, the sort of things that offended the butcher dancing in the streets you get this real sense of of there was a lot of fun in their lives mm. but it was never described as fun it was by the journalists looking on or or the um the police reporters or whatever they describe it as um people like marcus clark for mm. example who wrote a lot about melbourne in this period they talk about the screeching of the violins you know it, it somehow it offended their ears to listening to these people sing or um, play a fiddle badly or... But you, you just get the sense that there was community there, that they were all hanging about in the streets because they weren't socialising inside their houses. They were too small. So they were out in the streets and, um, yeah, it sort of it waxed and waned. Mm. There was obviously a lot of crime in... Um, particularly around Little Burke Street, there was where we had Romeo Lane and Juliet Terrace and, as you mentioned, Bilking Square, which that was a major business there for a while. Bilking mm. was a particular kind of theft 
in that it was a woman attracting a, a bloke to come home with her with a promise of sex, obviously. But when he got there, she'd collect some money from him to go to the pub and get some alcohol. Um, but while she was gone, her bloke had come out and say, mm. what are you doing here? And then he, the customer would have been fleeced on, on a number of levels. So, and that was called bilking. Yep. And it was quite, bilking square was obviously a center for it. Um, so yes, there was the ugly side. But there was also this sense that people did work together and they did have fun together. They also looked after each other. I mean, the, we do have records of babies being born to sex workers in pretty awful conditions. And the birth records list the woman who happened to be a neighbour who was the one who assisted at the birth. So they were very much in each other's lives. And... As we know, sometimes that's pretty and sometimes it's not. Mm. I like that you mentioned about how there was violence to be found there, but perhaps perhaps not all that much of a greater concentration than sort of anywhere else that was around Melbourne in the you know 19th century. I'm sure they would be pretty rife everywhere you went. There was a lot of uh, sort of abject poverty and destitution, probably forcing people into crime in some respects. You talked about the ugliness. Barbara, I wanted to talk. You mentioned a little bit about the the more flash. The I think you called them the flash brothels because there was one, there was one line that I was particularly impressed by. It's kind of stopped me a little bit. Is that you? In I think you mentioned in all your research, you didn't encounter uh, any any of the flash brothels that were run by a man. It was all it was all women, I believe. Is that correct? And if so, can you expand a little bit on that sort of uh, research that you found? Yes, it's it's true. I've not found the flash brothels are mm. always they were always run by women like Madame Russell's or is Carolyn Hodgson. Um, her husband, by the way, was a policeman um, who, after they arrived in Melbourne, their marriage broke up and he actually went off as a mounted trooper and worked up country um, and came back. She looked after him when he was dying, um, but the. There were men involved in the business, as, as I said, with the bilking and so on. They were, they were, they were pimps and bullies, particularly in that um, lower rung, if you like. Mm. But, and there, there were plenty of men in, in the 1850s when, who were charged with being brothel keepers. So it's kind of interesting to me to wonder why by the 1880s, the really classy brothels, Sarah Fraser, who was... She was really Madame Russell's predecessor, if you like. Um, she was, it was her house that entertained the Duke of Edinburgh in 1867 when he came, um, introduced by the Chief Commissioner of Police at the time. But those houses, no, I've not found any men involved in them. I did find one run by a French woman who was quite a, a cause célèbre in, in about the early... 1889 maybe she was actually sharing a business if you like she ran the brothel upstairs and he ran the cigar business downstairs um but that's one of the one of the very few that i could say i'm not sure how active he was in the brothel business but he was involved with her um so yeah it is one of the interesting things and one of the questions about why Melbourne developed in the way it did because it does seem to have had a different history to somewhere like Sydney. 
found myself asking that. I thought that that was an interesting point because it was obviously meticulously and exhaustively researched and how there was not, not much evidence of that, obviously with varying degrees of some male involvement. But within this sort of like the upper echelons, as it were, the, the top, the, the flash, the flash profiles, there was not that much male involvement, at least at a managerial sort of level. I was also interested as to the location of the government, how government and state houses and buildings weren't all that far away from, I think it's, it's mentioned that something like less than a block in some, in some respects. I'm not too familiar with the geography, but I was wondering, there's, there just seems to be this sort of duality that was going on, particularly with, as we've kind of covered with men in terms of the way in which they portrayed or spoke about um, sex workers within the media or within, you know, issuing public missives. But I wondered, because it just seems that there was such a balance of that. There was those, and I think you mentioned it at one point about how there has to be seen to be doing something and denouncing yet at the same time, either profiting from or using the services of. Tell me a little bit about this duality that you've sort of found there as well, Barbara, because I think that that's sort of covered quite well. The double standard was very strong. Mm. And I think the best indication of that is, is it was known as the necessary evil. Well, the necessary bit was the blokes mm. and the evil bit was the women. the women. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this sense of um, it has to be kept under the carpet. So it's okay as long as no one can see what's happening, which is the irony of it because as the century wore on, um, respectable women were expected to be seen less and less and less in the streets unless they were accompanied by a man. But sex workers, it was their job to be out in the streets. So they became more visible in a way. But they had to be kept out of the public eye. So how do you keep out of the public eye when your job is to be in a man's face? Well, it's because the men controlled what was seen and what was not seen. Um, and so the police actually said often, um, as long as you keep... As long as these houses are quiet, you can leave them alone. As long as they don't make a, a fuss, as long as they're not um, out in, in people's faces, just don't worry. But every now and again, there'd be massive, there'd be an outrage of, of complaints from the public and then the, pub, the police would feel they had to do something about it and the instruction would come down to the police on the beat, pick out the worst women and prosecute them, get them off the streets and then leave the rest alone. So it was about this double standard was just so strong and it went right through to the magistrates. So in the 19th century magistrates, most of the magistrates were not paid. They were volunteers. They were justices of the peace. What that meant was that they had no legal training. So when they sat on the bench and a woman was brought in front of them charged with vagrancy, having no um, lawful means of support, he would make a judgment based on his own social values about what justice was. If he was a, um, a regular um, client of the brothels, he may well just say, oh, he'll dismiss the charges. But if he was an upright man who believed that this was morally degrading and morally wrong, he could slot the same woman for 12 months jail. 
So you've got this situation in the, in the legal world where you've got a lot of the magistrates. And in, in 1895, there was um, a whistleblower, Lorma, who was a magistrate, who could see what was happening and thought this is just not on. Um, and he brought this to, to light. And, and, in fact, a couple of magistrates were shown in court to be um, clients of the brothels. And it took another 10 years before they actually did anything about it. But it's that kind of thing that just operated on, on below the visible level, if you like, all the way through the 19th century, that women just had to surf these kind of waves of outrage and try and keep their houses quiet and out of, um, out of the public eye and then they'd be fine. Yeah, there was so many um, interesting choices or terminology, like the sort of lexicon that was used with this, with, within this sort of sphere, um, as in like disorderly houses or nuisance houses and descriptions of, of that. But I mean, the necessary evil, certainly, male necessary, female evil, um, I found, yeah, throughout. I mean, I think there was Captain Frederick Standish. I think he uh, was mentioned about how it's inevitable that it's um, these services are going to be used, but then to try and, again, there's just this, this impossibleness of, of trying to bring forward, allowing for the services, but to push them as far away as possible, but yet no one can kind of trade without being visible. So it's just, it's just so impossible. Some of the crusades, I mean, there seem to be, you seem to kind of um, chronicle the, the various sort of um, people that were involved or figures. So some seemed more fanatical about the way in which they were sort of pr- pr- pursuing the ways in which they were trying to dismantle, I guess, that were completely eradicated from little on. And then there was more that were a bit more mannered. So the journal, I think his name was John Freeman and Marcus Clark as well. Marcus Clark wasn't a journalist, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about them and what they sort of did, Barbara, because it seemed to be in some for some respects I found to be some of the more devastating sort of landmark moments that happened of him, the sex trade of little one. John Freeman, he was called Freeman because he was Edward Oxford in England and he shot at Queen Victoria and was shut away in, in Bedlam for a long time. And then the police decided to send him out to the colonies and give him a new name and a new life. So, but then he started writing for the newspapers about um, all sorts of things that, that he felt needed improvement in society because he knew so much about society, of course. He'd been in Bedlam all that time. But they really, um, they made an art form of putting women down in one way or another or these particular women. And they were very... Um, colourful stories that they told, very attractive, but it's all part of the development of the middle class in the 19th century, that that respectability moving towards um, using material goods to show your class, if you like, moving up in the world. And part of that was confining women to a domestic sphere which, of course, in, it, in a funny sort of way, it's still happening, I suppose. But that moving women out of the centre of the city and moving them out into the garden spaces of the suburbs and um, it just left the sex workers in, a, in, a, in the inner city in a place where women weren't meant to be. Mm. 
and you've got people like Marcus Clark writing from that very misogynist point of view about sex workers. He clearly disapproved of them, but when you read more of his stuff, he didn't really have much approval of women generally. So mm. you've got that running through it and a lot of, and John Freeman was the same. I, I have a sense that he didn't really know much about women, but he made judgments and those judgments are what came out in his writing. Um, but they weren't the only ones. I mean, obviously there, it was a general attitude towards women that women, I think one of the things that Madame Brussels, I think, she became quite famous and she became a target for a lot of this because she appeared so successful mm. and, and it really offended um, a lot of men that, that she could be so financially, apparently financially successful with her business. And she did. She had a right business head on her about what to buy, when to buy, but she also used what she bought in different ways too. So there's, there's a lot to it when we start examining what the women were actually doing. Property was a big part of it for the more, the more well-known ones, or sorry, for the more successful ones. They were using property, but they were using it in the same way that men used it, you know, and you think, well, yeah, they didn't like it much. I think that's very well put, particularly when you mentioned about how journalists, their attitudes were kind of reflected in their writing, even if it's seemingly supposed to be just chronicling some sort of issue or some court case that they're covering. Certainly, I felt that shone throughout. It's interesting that you mentioned Madame Russell's case as well, because that evidently was a landmark case, particularly in that I felt that she never wanted to be a public figure, but yet she was kind of voiced into that being that public figure by the journalists with uh, certainly seemingly very misogynistic um, attitudes in the way in which they were covering the case. You've also included a couple of others as well. There was about four or something, but I'd particularly the ones that really stood out to me because I think that they sort of encapsulated this uh, being a victim of the system or being a par made a pariah of the system. It was like Annie Britton with the Hat and Sabre scandal. I really enjoyed that one. Um, the, uh, the, oh, Miss Fraser with the, the absolute almost sort of Marie Antoinette level of furnishings. I was hoping you were going to talk just a little bit about this because there's just such a fantastic sort of cross section within the figures that you've included here and spoken about at length within, um, the, the book. And I want you to talk a little bit about them, but these sort of figures that you've chosen, was it because there was a wealth of uh, research or knowledge available for them? Or was it something that you just continued digging up? Cause you mentioned as well, the difficulties with uh, some of the aliases and just trying to trace them and how difficult that could sometimes be. So why did you select some of these particular women that were covered within your book? Um, I would say, why does anyone choose a particular jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. You you see a range of them and you, you see a, a flash of colour and you think, oh, that one looks attractive. I'll have a look at that. Um, so some of them were, I mean, Sarah Fraser has to be um, included because of the famous story about her house entertaining the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. And there's been a lot of rubbish said about it and I think that was one of the things that really attracted me to figure out exactly what was going on. And, and it had been said for a long time that Frederick Standish, the um, chief commissioner of police, 
that he introduced the Duke of Edinburgh. And it was always assumed that he was um, a user of the brothels himself. But some of his diaries are actually, or parts of his diaries are in the State Library. So I just wanted to say, well, did he? <laughs> and he didn't. Well, he certainly was the one who introduced the Duke of Edinburgh to Sarah Fraser's house. Um, I don't believe he was generally a user of the brothels at all. So there's those sort of things that is a jigsaw puzzle. You start, you see a flash of colour, you think, oh, I'll follow that for a while, and then you find there's a much more interesting story. When I got into Sarah Fraser, I realised that the most interesting story in there is Sarah Sequoy, who in, in the diaries, in Standish's diaries, and also the diaries of Curtis Candler, who was the... Um, coroner at the time who actually they were friends they both lived in the Melbourne club um, they refer to her as well she's referred to as psyche p-s-y-c-h-e well it's obvious that Sarah Saki was a sequi how you pronounce it um, Candler refers to her as her name Sarah Sarah Sequi he refers to her as Shara and it's those kind of little things that just hook me into thinking these men, <laughs> they didn't mind using the women, but they were so disgracefully um, put down of them in, in so many ways, even just to call her that. They just had no respect mm. for the women at all. Um, so how do you get involved? You, you I mean, when we were doing Little Lon, the names would keep coming up. And I just started looking at which ones had the good stories, really, and, and then started looking, well, what else was happening? Things like Mary, Mary Williams, <clears throat> pardon me. Mary Williams was one of the back lane um, women. And you start following the story and that's where you really start to understand the conditions of these women's lives. They're just horrendous, you know, babies that live for a few months and um, <clears throat> then suddenly they're pregnant again and just how I just don't understand how they lived <clears throat> those lives, some of them. Excuse me. All right. So choosing which women to follow I could follow many of them, but these the ones that I chose were the ones that I could actually get a full aspect of their lives, if you like, get a, a picture of them over a, a longer period of time. And you can't always do that because they're very the women were very good at using aliases. Mm. And as I said, the names would be disguised. They would change their names at the drop of a hat. So you couldn't always follow them. But... There are also stories like Rosanna Summerhays, who um, was involved, her husband. I kept coming across him as a policeman, dealing with women in all sorts of ways, and he wasn't always good. And when I came to realise that his wife was involved in, in the industry too and started following that story when she was supposedly running a brothel in the gatehouse of the old Melbourne Cemetery, um, it kind of 
you start looking deeper and thinking, well, what happened to her afterwards? You know, that the, the whole thing blew up and you realise her husband was violent. Mm. And this is another thing that, that you follow through in so many of these women's lives. Domestic violence is not new. And the kind of really punishing domestic violence that a lot of these women suffered um, was what sent them into the industry. And it's, there's some really sad stories in there. But at the same time, you see these women having their children, caring for children, raising children who turn out to do all sorts of different things. And you think, well, it's part of life, isn't it, that we can learn and grow and change. And these women did too. Yeah, very much. I mean, you did mention, I think somewhere in the acknowledgements about how there was, you've, you've mentioned by name about 100 sex workers and that's only, I think you said, scratching the surface. And the thing that I kind of walked away with after reading it was how flimsy history can be and its accounts can be if it's told through, in this instance, a misogynistic lens uh, thereby, uh, the main sources of sort of historical accounts that are available, are police reports, newspaper articles, and how damaging that can be. And ultimately, if that can cause to, to lose a lot of the stories that otherwise uh, should be told or would need to be told, because they're actually quite instrumental in the shaping, not just maybe one portion, one small area of Melbourne's history, but overall sort of overarching history of the city. That's kind of what I felt. I don't know. What do you think? Mm. I think one of the things, once you start doing a jigsaw puzzle and, you, and you, you kind of get an outline of what things look like and suddenly you realise the bit in the middle is not quite what you expected, and which is part of the love of history, really, that you never know really where you will end up. So things like starting with the archaeologists discovered these absinthe bottles on one site and they couldn't work out well what are there were no absinthe bottles anywhere else they've discovered in melbourne so what were they doing there like a, a batch of them um in the end we decided when my colleague sarah hayes is the, does the material culture side we we worked out we think it was because Mrs. Bond was running a very different kind of brothel to the others ones in the, you know, differentiation of your business from the ones around you. She was using absinthe as an attraction. When I followed it through, though, and followed through her sons um, who inherited her, her properties and so on, I ended up in St Mary's Church in West Melbourne because the inside of it, was actually painted using the proceeds of the sale of her brothels. And it does give you a different sense of, of the world because one of the curiosities for me was why were there so many Roman Catholic Irish women involved in this industry? Quite out of proportion to their numbers within the population at the time because Mrs Bond was Roman Catholic Irish. Um, and it sort of come, came down to thinking about the culture of the people who were involved in this industry. And if they're coming from a culture where singing and dancing is part of what they enjoy life or how they enjoy life, how would you feel being locked up in a, a staid um, 
household in Melbourne where people expected you to keep your mouth shut and not be seen, um, only be seen when you're serving a table. And if you didn't know what's the difference between a dessert spoon and a tablespoon or how do I set the table, how do I polish the silver, um, you're not going to feel all that good, are you? And you're not going to feel welcome and you're not going to earn a very good reputation amongst your um, employers. So what are you going to do? You're going to put up with that kind of stuff or you're going to head out in the streets in Little On where maybe there's a bit more fun to be had and you can make a bit of money that far more than you would make slogging your guts out in a domestic service setting. Those sort of social questions, you know, they're such a curiosity because you then come back to, well, Mrs Bond's money ended up painting a church. Um, <laughs> you think, well, the world's a complex place, isn't it? Well, it's definitely a complex place and it is such a peculiar story. I'm so glad that you included that in there. What's, I mean, like we've kind of been over the sources and, and how you've uh, you likened it to a jigsaw puzzle. And I wondered how often uh, that kind of the, the jigsaw puzzle, you, you managed to prevail over it and, and trace the story to its origins as much as you want and how often the sources kind of uh, just fizzled out. Because I feel like, and you mentioned at one point, I think early on it was discussing about how some of it, it was only, there was only all that was available to you is to get some semblance of impressions rather than actual statistics or records because they just were not well kept in many respects. How often was that a problem for you in, in, during the research of this book and how did you sort of overcome that? I think when you're dealing with history, you're always having to figure out when do I deep dive mm. and when do I skate and sometimes you just have to accept that you can, you've deep dived as much as you can and all you can do is skate. Um, and sometimes it means you, you end up in a different position, a different place with a different person or um, it can be very frustrating. You know, there are, there are certain people I'd, I'd love to know who Cecilia Scarlett really was, mm. <laughs> but all I have is her name. Um, they, they had some wonderful choices of, of aliases. Um, but, yes, I think you can just go on forever. I mean, if you find there's a question I can't answer. Things like numbers. Um, I have a background in mathematics and, and it's interesting to me that the numbers were so broad that people would come up with these out of the blue. Oh, there's 6,000 sex workers in Melbourne. And then the next one, the police would come along and say there are 624. <laughs> like, you know, the, these, these questions of what does this mean and why, why are people using figures like this? Because sometimes they're meaningful, sometimes they're not. There was, in 1909, after they, um, after they made it illegal in 1907. There was still a lot of, I mean, obviously women were still doing this work because there was still money in this. As long as there is, it's commercially viable, women will do it. And it's not just women, obviously now. But 1909, they, the police were asked, every single station, police station in Melbourne was asked to list 
the number of girls under 16 who were cohabiting with men, the number of girls between 16 and 18 who were cohabiting with men, the number of prostitutes, as they said, who were walking the streets. And, like, they you know, well, each station would say we've got one of these and one of those and none of these. And I'm thinking, did they really know their community that closely that they could say? And they'd even been down to the um, births, deaths and marriages registration because they wanted to know how many illegitimate children were born in their area to girls under 18 and, and so on. And... Do they really? Did they really know? And what does what do these numbers actually mean? Because then they'd add them all up and say, well, Victoria's got 34 of these. And, mm. You know, I mean, but some of them, the figures that they would come up with were just Not quite meaningless, but mm. they kept on doing it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's, well, I'm, I'm just glad that you persisted with it because I can only imagine just like you... Like you sort of describe then as to, to pursuing the, the, the stats themselves are certainly not to be trusted given how arbitrarily they seemingly took the information. So that's just not to be trusted. But then to actually continue delving and the fact that you did so with, with so many um, figures that might have appeared in lots of different accounts, but they might have used different aliases. Some presumably uh, might have been phonetically heard, as you kind of mentioned there, but then there would be others that just that just weren't. So like to, to kind of trace the the thread as it were of some of these chronicles would have just been so hard to do, Barbara. So I'm really, really glad that you did. I might leave with asking, what is it that you would like? Did you, first and foremost, did you, do you feel that the the book is, uh, has summed up what you wanted within the forward in terms of talking about giving the voice to these figures? I certainly think so, but I wanted to see if you, if you felt similarly in terms of uh, what you've set out to do there and how that's been achieved. What I really set out to do, I guess, was to bring these women into visibility mm. and to, in a sense, to, to dig beneath the moral judgment about them um, and to give some indication of the fact these are not wicked women. They're not... I mean, some of them I wouldn't have wanted to have crossed in a dark alley at night, I must admit. Um, but by and large... They're women caught in they're caught in extraordinary circumstances and mm. they're making the best of their lives in the way that most of us try to do. And many of them, the choices in their lives were a really bad lot. So can we blame them for making choices which were not necessarily good ones according to the, the moralists or anyone else? Um, so I guess I was... I was happy to, to have been able to do that and I was happy to have been able to come out of it with a sense for myself that the women weren't wicked, mm. that, that the moral judgment of these women was just highly unreasonable and I think that has a relevance today, that we need to understand that that this isn't just a moral decision people are making, that, that there are economic reasons behind it, there are social reasons behind it, there are whole range, and there are personal preference. You know, how can we say um, this woman shouldn't be doing that because she could be doing something better? 
Mm. Um, why does she not have a right to make this choice? Um, and Madam Russell's, I'm sure she had a business head to her and Sarah Fraser too. They probably could have been good grocery madams in the corner store. But who's to say they're evil because they chose to do what they did rather than run a grocery store? Um, I think for me that was the best thing. It really it clarified my own views about those questions and it very much brought me to the point where I'm, I'm totally in support of the, the Victorian government's um, push now to decriminalise sex work and treat it as a job. On top. Sorry, you were going to say? Well, I, for me, that's sort of the bottom line, really. Yeah, look, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm glad that I, I knew nothing about this this subject, albeit this part. I mean, I'm, I hail from Sydney. I'm in Sydney right now, so I, I didn't know anything about Little Lawn. But just by virtue of reading the blurb, I just thought it sounded like a fascinating part of history. And I do think that it is often underrepresented or just in, inherently maligned like that, um, no matter what sort of historical accounts you kind of consult there. And I think that's always kind of been the case. I think it's changing a little bit now uh, in terms of... Uh, what you sort of mentioned there and saying, oh, well, couldn't she be doing something better? I think those sort of questions that are posed and have been posed kind of time memorial, I don't think that they're as prevalent or asked as rigidly as they once were. I think that seemingly things are changing now. I think that as well, there's a lot more sort of discourse going on with sex workers within social media platforms. Seemingly, I feel that there's a lot more of an understanding and I think that clarity as well visibility i'd say sorry visibility i think there's a lot more visibility of sex workers now and that kind of allows for a discourse to understand what's going on because i think a lot of it maybe was part and parcel with with not understanding and again you've got the sources of kind of what we've touched on with the media the misogynistic media sort of feeding this this evil this, this perpetuating this stereotype of an evil wicked woman that's trying to lure away virtuous men from the street as it were <laughs> And I think it's that that's kind of line, isn't it? it is, and I think that that's kind of changed a lot now because there's yeah, just with social media, it's just made it so much easier to actually see people that um, that are sex workers uh, talk cordially about sex work, and I think that it's slowly getting better. I, for one, certainly hope that that it is getting better, but uh, I don't think it could be done without shining a light on history and, in many respects, how far we've come, uh, and what was uh, what the sex workers of Little Lawn at the time endured and sort of prevailed over. And like you said, just trying to live their best life in that regard. So I'm so glad that you stuck with it. I'm so glad that you compiled all this research. I can only imagine how difficult it would have been in some parts because uh, I really enjoyed your book, Barbara. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. It's great. So everyone, there you have it. That was Barbara Minchinton talking to me about her book, the women of Little Lawn. So huge thanks to Barbara for being so insightful about such a innately, I found, fascinating subject uh, as the the history of sex workers localised within the Little Lawn area of Melbourne, something that I had had not even a rudimentary understanding prior to picking up the women of Little Lawn. So it was an absolute joy to read this, to learn more and to speak to Barbara as well. So uh, again, yep, huge thanks to Barbara Mingenton for talking to me on the program about the women of Little Lawn. In the interim, I will naturally, within the biography, nearly fell over that word, biography slash description of this particular episode, put in the link to the good folks at Black Ink Publishing, 
who are the good folks who published Barbara's book. Uh, so get on there, get a copy of uh, The Women of Little Lawn. Now hot in your hands there from the good folks at Black Ink Publisher. Huge thanks to them as well. They've also just sent me another book I've been dying to read as well. Gert Nation, The Unauthorized History of Australia, Volume 3 with David Hunt. But I will also share a photo of that on the story as well, the Graham story, so you can have a look at that too. But yes, huge thanks to Barbara. Once again, can't stress that enough. Absolute joy talking to her. Huge thanks to Black Ink for sending me out the, the Women of Little Lawn book, as well as Gert Nation as well. And finally, uh, but not lastly, or lastly, but not finally, or whichever way you want to put that in, whichever pretty sentence you want to say that in. If you haven't already, be sure to like or follow on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to this on. And yeah, get back to the now near year's worth of uh, episodes thus far. Uh, get back and listen. I, I'm going to I'm going to count the first of November as the birthday for the Right Way podcast because I don't really have any other way to track it. Unbelievably, I don't understand how to see it. It doesn't really show me the date properly on SoundCloud or Spotify. So we're going to make first of November the birthday for the Right Way podcast. And even though I might not be having that many guests on at that time, I'll still do something silly. I might dress up in um, in some sort of the Right Way podcast shirt. And then get a birthday hat and then maybe try and get my, conscript my cat into doing it with a little similar sort of birthday hat. If I can, if there's a will, there's a way. And if I could find a way to do it and make myself look silly, I will do that too. Rest assured. But in the interim, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Get listening to the others and have a good afternoon.